Hello everybody, welcome back to the BSF Lecture Series on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region. Today, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew's description of Jesus' ministry among the people as one who spoke with authority about God and his salvation for all people. Here we see Jesus purposely reaching out to the outcast and forgotten of the world. But before we take a closer look at this chapter, here are a couple of announcements, vital announcements for this week. Remember that this coming uh, week will be uh, the starting point in which that download um, lesson plans on mybsf.org will no longer be available as they transition into mybsf 2.0. So, it is vital for all of you to download your lessons in advance. One way to avoid this is you might download the BSF app. If you have that, the questions will be loaded onto the app um, and you won't have to download them separately. But what you do have to do is download the lecture material uh, still and also the notes separately on your phone. If you don't want to do that, you can also fall back on our backup plan, which is to have the materials available for you on our local BibleSF.com website. That is the local San Francisco BSF website at BibleSF.com. And you'll be able to download the lesson plan. Also access the YouTube link where you can continue to hear the lecture talk for each week. That's the only place where the link will be available. And the YouTube link will be private, so you can't find it by searching for it. So Please let your friends and others know that they will be available there. All right, moving into our discussion for today, the big idea out of chapter 8 is that God demonstrated supreme authority over our most fundamental needs. God demonstrated supreme authority over our most fundamental needs. So there are no other religions or philosophical leader or teacher who spoke about the nature of the world and mankind and explained it with such authority as Jesus had to us. The focal verse to look at is, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Matthew 8, 27, part B. I had a student from another country who had never tasted Coca-Cola before. Uh, he had shared that in his country, they didn't drink so many sugary drinks at every meal. So when we got to the soda fountain for uh, lunch, he filled his cup half with Coca-Cola and half with water and ice. You can imagine what that did to the drink. If you've ever had cola in a cup full of melted ice sitting in your car's cup holder over a day, uh, you know the taste turns into this vile, viscous liquid that is the opposite of refreshing. So when we got to our tables and started eating our meals, he took one gulp of that mixture and looked at us with a decided, settled conviction that American drinks were terrible. <laughs> How can you enjoy such, uh, drinking such drinks with good food, he asked. We have much better things to drink where I am from, he said. So have you come across people who have said they have tried the Bible, the Christian faith, and the same sort of kind of mixture of what they've known before with what they're learning in the same kind of mixed up way and have come away from it with the same kind of decided, settled conviction that it is definitely not for them. As you hear their experience, you know they have not entered into a full, complete relationship with Jesus to experience the authentic, let's say, the, the authentic drink or the authentic relationship uh, and the power that comes out of it. Let's call it the zing, the zest, the power, the glory of Jesus so that it changes their experience of everything else they know. 
What they seek to do, and what many of us are tending to do when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, is that we want to mix up a little bit of the Christian faith in a measured, limited way so it doesn't interfere with what we're currently doing, what's convenient for us in the flesh. In a limited way with everything else that they're already doing and getting some unsavory concoction that's just worse than they could have possibly imagined and they just throw it away. So, 1 Timothy 3.5 says, they become people that show a form of godliness or a desire for it, but denying the power thereof. Even the Bible doesn't want you to drink such awful stuff and says in no uncertain terms that we should turn away from such people who try to mix God's truth with a whole lot of their own unyielded man-centered philosophies. When we don't know what to believe, we often mix things together because we think somehow they will all come together and produce the right results or make the thing more palatable to us uh, so that we don't have to yield up anything from our old lives. Um, the world and its relativism has become quite comfortable in saying that there are no absolutes, no absolute authorities on what I should believe. I make up my own truth. I make up my own reality. The world says the individual has power now to deconstruct authority and construct and design one's own life from whatever one wants to accept as true for themselves. Truth is what you make of it, so they say. But the consequences of an individual's finite and very limited ability to know and know anything for certain certainty and understand anything clearly has created a world of competing emotional truths with no referee. It's an age of tribal groups defined more by what they are against than to know what they are living for. And they're leading to more confrontation and friction without helping anyone get anywhere near to the depth of understanding to the ancient questions that we all ask in ourselves. Why one is alive, how we got here, and what we were created for. What's the purpose of existence? The God through the Bible, unlike any other spiritual resource that mankind has, has always insisted on its primal authority, teaching against relying on our own understanding, setting up our own idols and false gods as authorities. Doing our own thing when it comes to understanding God and His world leads us into darkness, not more light and not more illumination. 1 Timothy 2, 3-5 says, God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony that was given at just the right time. Jesus himself taught in John 14, 6 that he was the only way, the truth and the light, and no one could come to the Father God but through him. It is an exclusive statement. Jesus demonstrated clear authority in teaching through the Sermon on the Mount that we studied the past few weeks, and now in this chapter, he demonstrates clear and compassionate authority over disease, sickness, spiritual bondage, and even our small faiths as he ministers to the needs of the people as a sign of his identity. They're signs of his identity as the promised Messiah. Many of us have a problem with authority and suspicion of authority figures is just what we have in our day and age, because we know how frail and uh, fallible human authorities can be. Uh, when we see them, they use their powers to ingratiate themselves or to consolidate more power. But what if you met an authority who had more perfect motives, 
absolutely perfect motives and could be totally trusted because he didn't need to fight for power. Will we submit to such a person and his authority? You see, Jesus was that kind of person with perfect motives, unlike our own. His authority is pure and true, not motivated by self-interest, hidden agendas, no jockeying and struggling for power as human leaders or politicians do. Rather, his concern is covenantal, which means they always refer back to the promises of God that he's always promised, unwaveringly. His covenantal promises have always been seeking to fulfill all that was promised to mankind by God for sending the deliverer to set the captives, the spiritual captives, free, to give his life for our lives and make us a people for himself. He seeks to make this truth about who he is clearly known and is only motivated and driven by the Father's will to save lost humanity. Given that Jesus is the perfect authority who could be trusted totally, will we trust him? So in this passage, we will learn about Jesus' absolute authority, who is worthy of our absolute faith in him. We look, we're going to look at this passage in two divisions. First, Jesus' clear authority, verse 1 through 18. And then Jesus' compassionate authority, verse 18 to 34. So let's look now at chapter 8, where we see Christ's compassionate authority, how he cleanses people who are seen as outcasts. But let's start in the last two verses of chapter 7 to gain some context and perspective. So I'm going to look at seven, verse, chapter 7, verse 28, where it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. In Jewish culture, a leper was truly an untouchable outcast. He would have been as one who was ceremonially unclean. Lepers lived outside the city, out of sight, out of mind, in their own uh, leper colonies. So it was risky for this man to approach Jesus and the crowd because he would have been met with great anger by a fearful crowd who didn't think he belonged there. He knew himself he didn't belong there before some uh, holy one sent by God. But he dared to humbly ask, as he crouched there, we read, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Surprising to everyone watching on, Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the mangy, diseased man in his despair and says, I am willing, be clean. Jesus tells him to tell no one, but first to go worship. Verse 4 says, Go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus sends him as an emissary to the Jerusalem temple, where unbelieving religious rulers could clearly see God was among them and fulfilling the prophetic promises, the covenantal promises of old in their day. So in verse 5 to 13, Jesus is met by a pagan centurion who asks for Jesus' help to heal a valuable servant who possibly through some terrible accident lies paralyzed and in terrible suffering. When Jesus offers to go and heal him, the centurion replies, No, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my, my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. This centurion is an outcast of a different kind, a man who represents the loathsome pagan Roman Empire which has conquered Israel and keeps it humiliated under its rule. He is an unlearned foreigner, unfamiliar in the Jewish Bible, doesn't know God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or of Moses and the prophets, so untrained as to understand the power of God of this land, 
But based on what he knows from his own simple life, based on what he has heard about Jesus and his ministry, he assumes and believes Jesus to have complete authority, such that unlike the crowd of followers at this time, and maybe even today, who are seeking to touch Jesus to be healed, to take something of his as a keepsake, take a piece of his hair or find his burial shroud, like the Shroud of Turin or the cup of his Last Supper, this centurion instead has faith, a simple faith, that Jesus had complete authority and could heal merely at his word from far away. Do you have complete faith in Jesus' authority in your own life, such as this? If I really do, I would be living into it in the same way I believe, for instance, that airplanes are safe. I would be acting on that reality. I would buy a ticket and fly, integrating this whole flying thing into how I live my life as a distinct reality. I wouldn't compartmentalize this belief where it's never used, somewhere in a corner, but I would act actively live on it. I wouldn't live into it as something never discussed with others, never raved about. Instead, I would be, I would be talking about it actively, how it improved my life, how it had changed everything. If this is real, it permeates and changes everything about the structure of my thoughts and my interactions with others. And so it is with Jesus. I actively lean into my faith as I should when I understand the reality of it in Jesus in my heart. This is a vital point for the church because it draws our minds to reflect again on the centrality of God's word in our hearts to transform our lives. Not rituals and relics, not lineage or human heritage, or some practice of religiosity. I know some people who go about bragging about their DNA heritage, about how they are the lineage, part of the lineage of uh, royalty in the past, or dukes and uh, duchesses. Um, but what kind of enthusiasm do we have for the Christ in us and the authority by which he has sent us? Jesus commends the centurion because of his great faith the kind that was to spark the great invitation to the Gentiles all over the world to this day. Next, we hear about Jesus visiting with Peter. Peter lived in Capernaum, and it was there Jesus entered Peter's home where they found his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. This is interesting to us because it shows that even with family members at home, Peter was with Jesus. Uh, he, he was um, committed to Jesus. There is comfort in knowing that Jesus knows our needs at home, even as we are involved in his ministry and following him, he blesses them so that we can continue to follow him where he leads us. Jesus' heart is always to our uh, deliberations and pains, our brokenness and su sufferings, the core origins of which come from our sins. It is the global as aspect of sin that Jesus came to die, to lay down his life as a ransom for many, not just the many symptoms of sin that bring disease and death, so the writer in Matthew reminds us that all the healings and exorcisms that Jesus did was to fulfill a sign what the prophets Isaiah had said about the Messiah, that he took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. So people, however, tend to have a short-term, self-oriented view of everything, always in the here and now. Uh, I, I'm sure you and I, we, we both are included in this. And the more they saw Jesus' authority to heal and to do miracles, they overwhelmed him with demands. So you see, brokenness in this life is going to be ongoing until we die. One healing doesn't inoculate us never to get hurt or sick again, never to be afflicted again from all the other consequences of sin in this world. Jesus knew that all these healings didn't solve the most important problem of mankind, 
the most permanent healing that we needed, the very point of God's promise of a Messiah. Regardless of any healing or exorcism, other sicknesses and diseases and battle with demonic spirits were going to continue in this fallen world until Jesus revamped it. But Jesus came to be the eternal spiritual Messiah, the eternal solution, not just their worldly solution. It is only in Christ's spiritual salvation that the solution for all the consequences of sin and death can be completely vanquished and we are eternally healed. He promises to spiritually heal all who come to Him. And this is the only long-term solution that matters. Because this healing transcends time, location, distance, access, social status, and any other barrier. It's permanent and it's everlasting. His compassionate authority to spiritually heal was ultimately expressed on the cross. And He dealt with the curse of sin as He willingly sacrificed Himself there. So this is the first principle for us to remember and to reflect on. We can trust Jesus' authority over all our brokenness. What is ailing you and what is broken in you in your life? Perhaps you're feeling marginalized or labeled uh, by society. Maybe it, you feel some kind of injustice or maybe you're a you have chronic illness or condition or sense of inadequacy, uh, low self-esteem, insignificance in your daily responsibilities at home or at work. Or maybe you've got some a relational strain with a loved one or a co-worker. Maybe you're a student and you just can't feel like you're always uh, failing as a student. Will you go to Jesus and ask for him for more than a short-term fix? Will you give your life over to him and depend on the long-term fix? That he has power and authority to help you beyond just merely the healing that you're seeking. Beyond the quick fix that you're looking for. Jesus' authority is trustworthy because He's always and eternally loving on you and has the eternal solution for you. He's compassionate. The Bible says God's attitude toward us is one in which is abounding in love and mercy and compassion for us in our need. His mercy and love overflowing into regard for you intimately, such that He knows the very hair on your heads. He knows your report card. He knows every secret sin. He knows everything about you but loves you completely. Jesus desires and is able to heal all the broken pieces within you and me, such that nothing in this life's brokenness can overcome the victory in life we already have, that we've already been given in Christ's salvation. So that's why the prophets were able to say, along the lines of this song that I found, that whether now or then, death is not my end. I know heaven waits for me, though the road seems long, I'll never walk alone. And I got all I need. I know you love me. I know you found me. I know you saved me. And your grace will never fail me. And while I'm waiting, I'm not waiting. I know heaven lives in me. Should I suffer long, this is not my home. I know heaven waits for me. And though the night is dark, heaven owns my heart. And I got all I need to sing. And your grace will never fail me. So I will sing like I will be there. In the fearless light of glory, where the darkness cannot find me. And your face is all I see. And so I will sing like a man with no sickness in my body, like no prison walls can hold me. I will sing like I am free, because I know you love me. I know you found me. I know you saved me. And your grace will never fail me. Miracles have their limits in telling the full story. What changes our perspective about Jesus is not the miracles, deeds, nor the works that we see Jesus do for. They are merely signs of his identity. They're merely signs. 
we must always link them back to who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the covenantal promise, that eternal and historical promise God has always made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through all the peoples from the very beginning of time in Genesis, from the very beginning that he was going to send a savior. He is the covenantal creator. He is the covenantal ruler of all. To know the mighty name of God as Savior is what changes us, not those miracles that are just merely a sign. We can confidently go to Jesus with our physical and spiritual infirmities because of His absolute authority and power that He can change us and touch us with His Word. Whether God chooses to heal our temporary infirmities of this body or not, we know He exercises His complete authority over us with compassion. He may heal our physical brokenness or just give us enough grace to endure, but more importantly, we know He has healed our spiritual brokenness when we come to Him for forgiveness of our sins. And this is the deepest healing we all need that conquers everything else. Two important instances occur in the next verses, which are very important lessons for this chapter on how we respond to Jesus' authority over our lives. So first, there's the man who's the teacher of the law, who comes and he says he wants to follow Jesus. We know that such a man was educated. He's from a good home of good, ample means. He was very highly respected in his culture for his learning and influence among the people. When people look at Jesus' life, his authority and power, and the miracles and profound impact that he has on people, like this teacher of the law, they can misunderstand by looking at just the kind of religious glamour and the power that Jesus has that they want to follow Jesus without really thinking about what it means for what they have. They might have to let what they are used to living into go. Even today, we think it's easy to follow Jesus by making it about a series of easy life decisions and many, many steps of obedience and trust. We don't think about, we can't have both what he has at home as a religious teacher of the law and what Jesus is calling us to, a life of sacrifice. The teacher wants to follow Jesus, but perhaps doesn't realize the cost and radical change of lifestyle that accompanies following Jesus without the honor of the teacher and the posh life that he's used to and accustomed to. Seeing what Jesus does, he knows that there's something special here. But the question is, is he prepared to have his life changed in a radically different way that means sacrificing the privileges that he's grown fond of and expects out of life? And we have those too. The lifestyle that we're fond of, the expectations that we have. Sometimes we are not willing to let go. That's a question for us today. We regularly fail on all kinds of diets and plans for personal change. Do we fully realize how poorly we follow Jesus while professing to follow him? Then moving on, verse 21, a disciple comes to take leave of Jesus to take care of his father's funeral. And on the surface of it, it sounds like a noble request. But remember, you know, a historian previously shared uh, something really interesting about this culture with me. He said, in this culture, a family has many children and relatives who oversaw many different responsibilities in the family, including funerals. Funerals sometimes went on for days, as weddings did, involving hiring uh, professional mourners, preparing food for guests, coordinating with religious leaders on who would guide the process of where and how the burial ceremony was conducted. So much of this was a perfunctory act of last respects. On the other hand, this disciple was witnessing something that was the fulfillment of all God's promises through the ages. 
What he was living through was the centerpiece of mankind's history. Jesus was here. God's promises for all mankind fulfilled par excellence, demonstrated by amazing things people throughout history had never seen before. Demons being cast out, incredible wonders of healing, disabilities being fixed, broken bodies being fully, beautifully restored. Then they witnessed torrents of weather being stilled with the word, raving psychopaths, demon-possessed among tombs, being transformed into worshipers and emissaries of God to their local communities. There was something very, very mixed up here. If you were in a situation to be in the center of something amazing, would you be thinking about going somewhere else? Even as, maybe perhaps biblically speaking, heaven opened and angels were seen ascending and descending, would you be thinking about fast food? Would you be thinking about your stomach? What kind of person would want to miss a moment of what's going on around Jesus at this point in time? Has there been a time when you knew there was something special going on, something special taking place, but you decided to stay put, to stay with the predictable routines of life because it was safer and better for you, but you regretted doing that later on? This disciple wants to fulfill his family obligation, even as he's witnessing the great power of God being unleashed among the people, things so incredible and amazing that people are running from far away, long distances, running to Jesus to witness it. And they're not going home. They don't have lunch bags. They don't have you know, extra pair of clothes. They want to stay with Jesus. Likewise, we can get so diverted by the many seemingly good distractions of this life that we get our heads averted away from Jesus, even for a minute, which leads to hours, which leads to days, such that we never get our love and our following for Jesus back as we once had. That's the trick of life. Life happens and they often can overwhelm us, take precedence over our commitment to and looking at the urgent realities Jesus is bringing to our eyes. Today, I've in fact heard from many of my friends that it's, it's really hard because life is more and more all-consuming. They start off with in the morning with emails and it, just looking at emails all day, hundreds of emails that come through over a week. We can get consumed so that all our mornings and our days are consumed by the incessant press of content and material rubbing and pushing up against us. And then think about our obligation to our jobs and then to uh, paying the mortgage on our dream house, responsibilities to our families and our parents. You know, I'm at a stage of life where many of my friends also are saying they see their pa parents pass away. And after having passed, uh, they're left with so many of the worldly things that their parents have. Their house, the wills, the library of documents and files and books and furniture and heirlooms. All of that that's now pushed on them uh, makes an already busy life even busier. And they're overwhelmed by it, trying to tidy up the worldly affairs to pay much attention to what Christ is trying to get them to see, uh, to pay more attention to to focus on the spiritual affairs that Christ has called us to. Life is hard, but as a disciple, we must be singularly minded so that we're cognizant of the Master's work so that it becomes increasingly a higher priority, not something that simply falls back as just another task among a heap of other mundane issues of life we're wading through. Jesus' concern are the only concerns that should matter for all eternity. 
you know, it will be the only thing that matters for all eternity after everything's said and done. And finally, we come to the last section here of the chapter. Jesus and the disciples got caught up in a storm while crossing to the opposite side of this large Galilean lake. Jesus is so physically exalted from the days of long, incessant hours of ministry. In his humanity, he was tired and was sleeping through the boisterous winds, kicking up the waves. Perhaps also, this storm was brought by demonic forces, which knew Jesus was heading to the land of the Gadarenes, where thousands of demons were already roosting and held that land captive to spiritual darkness. Jesus quiets the storm with just simply a word. He always uses his word. So even when we are afraid as the disciples' word, we should realize and remember that it is his word that changes the storms in our hearts and in our lives. Usually what we need most of all are not more counselors and more people coming up at us. We need God's word to quiet those storms. And the times of storms in our lives are not, uh, cannot be remedied with new age platitudes or a good book or a Netflix movie or folk wisdom. But what we need is a reminder from God's word that he is in complete sovereign control. He is authority over everything. And he will love and protect us no matter what may be working against us. So the second principle for us to remember is that we can trust Jesus' authority over our lives, even in the parts we think God is not watching. At times when we think God is not watching, that we are hidden from his view, we are not. We can trust his authority over our personal and family circumstances, over our natural environment, over our livelihoods, over our leaders. We can trust his authority over our past, present, and future. There is nothing outside of Jesus' realm and reign. Jesus enters this land of the Gadarenes because while other religious people may have abandoned it, maybe they're scared of it, Jesus has an appointment to keep with two demon-possessed men who he wanted to rescue and liberate. As soon as they landed on the shore, these two men who are running around naked among the tombs here, scratching and hurting themselves and yelling and screeching from their possession by demonic spirits, uh, they show up possibly to obstruct his path. But Jesus came to bring light and truth into this region, which was being guarded by these two demon-possessed men. Jesus expels the demons who did not want to go, and so they were allowed to go into a herd of uh, pigs. Uh, we do not know the details of this land, but uh, we know that people who were grazing their pigs among the tombs um, perhaps uh, did so intentionally. Uh, perhaps even grazing these pigs were grazing on body parts of deceased pe people. Uh, we don't know. But I, I, can, I don't know why pigs would be grazing among tombs. Uh, they did not have an understanding from this, I feel, of what is holy and unholy, filthy and clean. The demons desire to relocate to things equally unclean among the pigs. Have you noticed how where there is ever evil practice, there is envy, strife? Of, which is uh, a form of competitive wrangling and confusion and an underlying sense that the place is steeped in demonic dark forces at work. You might have noticed that in your workplace or maybe in places that you should not be. That is the place you will find people bound and captive to every kind of unholiness. And they will beg you and force you as a follower of God to depart from their company if you are following God. Such as the Gadarenes, they were so invested in their sinful practices and found Jesus' liberation and presence unwelcomed, a threat and a, an opposition to their way of life and thinking. It mattered less that Jesus liberated tortured souls from demon possession 
The people loved their lives under demonic influences more than the freedom that Jesus sought to give them. We see this all around us even today in our self-indulgent culture. I hear that our youth are now using social media and the capability of their smartphones to doing video sexting, which is posting personally made porn videos for their friends to watch, porn selfies, and some even making money from it by posting them on porn sites. When we have become accustomed to loving sin, there is no place in our hearts for Jesus to step any further because we had not made room for him. I can have total shalom as Jesus promised to give to us, spiritual liberation and peace as only Jesus seeks to give us, only when I accept Jesus into my life. Perfect peace allows us to enter into unhindered worship of God. Whatever setbacks I may face or doubts that may weigh me down, when I learn to rely on the authority of Jesus, I see what I could not see before. And then seeing into situations as he sees, I see that he is more powerful and has greater things in store for me than what the world would offer to me. He is greater and I am his servant. Let us remember what Mary responded when the angel presented her with a very extraordinary and difficult calling. She replied, May it be according to your will. And she was greatly blessed as the human mother of Jesus. What a wonderful example for us as we come to God. May it be according to your will. May it be, Lord, according to your word. I can rest assured in his care and watch over all my affairs and give careful attention to watch and pray and work alongside him to whatever he asks of me, wherever he takes me. May the Lord give you his shalom throughout this week. God bless you.